Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Warden's Watch Podcast is now on Patreon, combining the Thin Green Line Podcast and the Warden's Watch Podcast on Patreon to bring member-exclusive extra content, both video, audio, and with product deals as well. Become a member to support our podcast and get something extra. Search Warden's Watch Podcast on Patreon. On this episode of The Thin Green Line, we are with Jay Crafter of Invictus Canine, who came to us by Jeff Milner. And everybody listened to Jeff Milner's uh, canine podcast, uh, the president of the Conservation Officer Canine Association, newly formed, and Jay was at a conference and did a conference for the the canine officers, conservation canine officers, John, and boy, Jeff was impressed. If you look at what Jay has done in dog training, and especially in Africa, focusing on Africa, born in Africa, boy, I'm I'm look, really looking forward to seeing how they train these dogs and how they use them because he's been all over Africa, and that's certainly where his focus is. Yeah, when I, I really like this story after talking to him because of similarities to what, you know, we're doing with apprehension dogs on the West Coast, especially on the, you know, marijuana enforcement team front, um, just, well, basically to stop other kinds of poachers, right? Cartel mm. gun, destroying our wildlife. And Jay is actually, you know, using his dogs to safely apprehend and interdict and find and track these poachers in Africa that, as we know, Wayne, are incredibly deadly. And we'll go to guns, life or death, you know, to, to protect the animals they're going after because of the huge black market return. So there's a lot of similarities and uh, really need to see what they're doing over in Africa and how similar those techniques are 
how similar the training pro, uh, programs are and how the dogs are utilized. Um, but they, they definitely have a, a unique style, the way they do work over there. And Jay's, you know, just really developed a great program. It's a super fun episode. Yeah, and with our passion with canines, uh, this just fits right in really well. And I think every listener will enjoy this episode of The Thin Green Line with Jay Crafter, Invictus Canines. Check them out. On this Thin Green Line podcast, we are with Jay Crafter of Invictus Canine. And Jay is like a guru dog trainer. Jeff Milner, you guys probably all listen to the Warden's Watch uh, podcast with Jeff Milner, who is the president of the Canine Conservation Officer Association, newly formed out of, he's out of Indiana. It goes nationwide. And Jay was a guest uh, trainer, speaker at their, I think it was their second conference ever. And I, I just told Jay that, you know, Jeff speaks extremely highly of you, as well as the officers, uh, Eric Fluett from New Hampshire attended it, as well as uh, James Benvenuti were out there. So they all spoke extremely highly of you, Jay. So, and just the work you do, it seems to fit in the thin green line epically for to get out there to let people know what you're doing in Africa and uh, and what you're doing here in the United States by going to that conference and taking your knowledge and giving that out and sharing that is pretty good. So thanks for joining us. And can we start off Invictus? Can you tell us where you got your name? I always like to start because names have meaning. Yeah, no. Um, so, yeah, Invictus uh, loosely translated out of Latin means invincible. Um uh, there was a, a book written, you know, not too long ago um, about the 1995 World Cup rugby match. And it was uh, basically Nelson Mandela and he embraced the rugby team in South Africa post-apartheid. And, you know, it was, it was tough times. And, uh, you know, he, while he was in prison, there was a, a, a poem that he used to like, he memorized it and he learned it every day. And he uses it a lot in all his decision-making and, yeah, the poem's called Invictus. So, uh, I'm a rugby guy and, uh, you know, it's a, a true test of courage. Uh, so, uh, you know, I like, I like the movie. I like the idea of uh, what happened at the 95 World Cup and obviously I have huge respect for Nelson Mandela and uh, the poem, you know, is uh, it's a pretty beautiful poem and it has a lot of meaning in the work that I do. So it just seemed appropriate. Um, you know, it was something I'd like thought about for a long time, long before I'd set it up. And I just knew like when I set up a company, I could be a plumber. I was going to be Invictus yeah. Plumbing, whatever. <laughs> and uh, I just, yeah, I had, had it set. So that's, I mean, that's it. It's just, a, it's more of a personal thing. Um, you know, like a bit of a story behind it. And uh, yeah, that's it. Invincible Canine. It's, you know, man, it's, uh, well, first of all, thanks, thanks again for being on the show, Jay. Um, that is a great name that hits home on so many levels. And uh you know, as you as you know from what you've heard on our side is we're near and dear to the canine front. We've been involved in canines. Um, I've had a lot of experience with apprehension dogs fighting drug cartels here in the California forest and the West Coast. And um, it goes without saying what an amazing asset and force multiplier and members of the team these dogs are to all of us on both sides. And it's so cool to see what you're doing overseas. Um, and tell us a little bit about how you got into the canine world, man. Where did it start? Did it go back to childhood, working with pets like it all did for us? And what was the trigger to go the direction you've gone to actually be a canine trainer and deploy these things for good conservation work? No, I, like, I mean, I wish I had like a really cool story to share with you on it. I, I had pets growing up, cool dogs, you know, 
but they were 100% pets. They were lazy, pretty useless, ate food and got petted. Um, <laughs> I did a couple of hunts as a kid with my uncle, um, you know, shooting guinea fowl and Franklin and stuff like that. And, you know, I was impressed by the dogs and the retrievers and stuff like that. But um, I, I left school when I was uh, basically 17 and I went straight to the British Army. I didn't really have much choice in Africa. Um, at the time, Zimbabwe was going through like some serious political, you know, problems like, well, you know, that whole continent seems to go through periodically. And yeah, it was like, like a, the only choice for me. So went to join the military. I actually joined up as a mechanic and yeah, I uh, hated it. <laughs> I was like, this is terrible. I'm, I'm stuck inside a building making nuts and bolts all day. This is like the worst decision. I was 17, so I was young and very yeah. naive and you know i thought i was gonna be doing cool things i wasn't and i decided to move back to zimbabwe and because i was 17 i was allowed to give two weeks notice you know because i wasn't an adult yet um so my oc was a uh a zimbabwean guy because a lot of zimbos went over and joined the british army and he uh he said to me like just give it one more shot like country's falling apart you want to you know make sure you uh kind of if you're going to go back, make sure you've tried everything that you can do basically. And he gave me a book um, by an author called Wilbur Smith. And he writes these amazing stories on Africa and Southern Africa in particular. So I, I, you know, I got into Wilbur Smith and it, you know, obviously that made me even more homesick, but you know, there was, there were certain things in that book that kind of like made me think twice and, you know, persevering with things. And uh, I, 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 because I was, it was called PVR, personal voluntary release, when you when you leave the army like that, they put me on guard duty because you know I'm useless to everybody. Totally understand it and get it. So I was on two two hours on and two hours off for basically until I left the military uh, at the gate checking ID cards. And uh, so there I was, and this guy comes out and he's got this white German shepherd, which we now know means it's inbred. But at the time, I thought it was cool. And uh, yeah, I I was like, oh, this dog is so cool, you know. And it was super handler protective, which we don't want, you know. These yeah. identify friend and foe not everybody's foe so like all, all of these things now that i look at my, in hindsight so oh my god that dog was terrible but anyway i fell in love with that dog and uh yeah i was talking to the handler about it he said uh well you know you can go and do a two-week dog school and i mean my ambition at the time was to become a glorified security guard in the military and walk the fence with the dog you know because that was better than checking id cards um so i went up to melton mowbray which is uh home of the uk's kind of like uh, canine, equine, anything you think of that has four legs. And um, I went out for, a, so I did a week selection and you go out for the first like three or four days and, you know, the instructors get to know you and, and you lay tracks and you, you basically just, you know, feed dogs and walk dogs. And, you know, it seems it's very, you know, mundane, nothing exciting, but I watched this one dog track and I watched another dog do um, a detection of some ammunition. And obviously Northern Ireland was big for the British army at the time. And we're doing a lot of explosives, weapons, ammunition searches over there. And uh, I was blown away by how these dogs could work. And yeah, I was just hooked and I just, I, I need to do this. This is like something I really want to like carry on with. Um, so I rebadged, you know, just literally transferred to the Royal Army Veterinary Corps. Um, and it was the, the first time in my life that I actually found something that, I say this humbly that I was good at, you know, because I think I had the passion for it. I, was, I enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, up, up until that point, I just, I was just like clueless teenager, uh, classic situation. And I just volunteered for every course All you know, all my kind of like immediate family were in Zimbabwe. So when I took leave, I stayed on camp. I didn't like do anything else. And they were like, Hey, we've got a deployment to Kosovo. We need a handler to do this. So I'd go and do a 
six month course and get ready for that. And off I go for another six months. And I just threw myself at training and yeah, I got like a, a lot of different capabilities under my belt pretty quick. And yeah, when, and then, I mean, I just, yeah, dogs have just been good to me. Uh, then when I left the military, I kind of like snuck back into it through, um, I went, I went out to Iraq as a contractor, like everybody else did and earned a bit of money. And while I was there, I got offered a job to come and work for the DOD over here. So that's kind of like very quick, you know, how, how it all came about. It's, that's, that's incredible, man. Quite a, quite a backstory. And now that you're over here and you're doing so much training, do you specialize in any one faction, whether it be bomb detection, narcotics, um, you know, uh, suspect, dangerous criminal apprehension, or, or is it kind of a mix? And what, what is your specialty and what do you really enjoy the most? Um, from the from the aspect of, of canine training, because there's so much to it that so many people don't realize, and detection specialty alone, and just getting certain dogs to detect so well in certain areas, as as you well know, you know, preaching the choir on that, um, it's a fascinating process, and not all dogs are cut from the same cloth to do certain jobs as we've seen on our side of the pond. So, um, curious what your specialties are, and what you've seen, and what you what you prefer. So, I would say my kind of if I had to market myself in the U S uh, my background is counterterrorism. So I came over to help the DOD, nice. uh, you know, with the middle East. Um, so we, you know, we had 40 odd years of counterterrorism uh, work in Northern Ireland, um, you know, and that's, that's homegrown terror. Those guys that want to carry out an attack and get away. And obviously the situation in Afghan and Iraq at the time was different. So it was, I came over and we were basically training dogs to work off leash instead of on a six foot leash uh, to do explosive detection and at the at um i don't know if you remember general petraeus said uh, he wanted a, a dog with every patrol they spent trillions of dollars on countering yeah. the ied and the dog was the best thing at the beginning and at the end when they'd done all this research so that was when they were like we want a dog with every foot patrol so yeah my, my i would say explosive detection is you know where my kind of career took me um and then i've done a lot of work in the us with you know local and state law enforcement doing you know, bomb dogs, that kind of stuff. Yep. Uh, but but I've done all capabilities. Um, obviously, you know, to me, detection, detection, doesn't matter what the target center is. Um, obviously, um, you know, the protocols are going to be different when the dog indicates explosives versus narcotics. You know, that's that's a, that's a different conversation. But um, I would say my favorite is tracking. Um, nice. When I was in the British Army, I deployed to Bosnia. Um, so I went over there for nine months as a mind dog handler. And that was by far the hardest course I've ever attended um, and gone through. Given two dogs, do a bunch of searches in the UK just to get into the country. If you if your dog you know misses or falses or anything, you fail your training and you have to start again. It's just lots of pressure, and uh, you do the same thing when you get in country. But that program really taught me about um, you know having 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 that trust that your dog is good enough to do what you've trained it to do. Um, you know, and I do these conferences and I get up there and. You know, there's that the, the cliche, trust your dog, you know, trust the nose, all this stuff. And I, I go up there and I say, don't trust your damn dog because that thing's going to kill you as quickly as it wants to because that dog <laughs> wants to do the, the least amount of work to maximize the outcome. So if he thinks he could cheat, he'll cheat. I mean, they, they, that's what they do. Um, I, I say, trust your training. And that's what I learned with the Mind Dog program. I was walking through minefields looking for, you know, a device that had been there for 30 odd years. There's, there's no information to the dog besides that explosive content that's seeped through the ground uh, for the yeah. dog to indicate on. And, you know, we did a lot of work. I found a lot of landmines and I had two dogs and they both saved my life every single time they found something. 
Um, so yeah, but, but the credit doesn't go to me. It doesn't go to the dogs. It goes to the guys that train me and the dogs to be prepared for that environment. So, um, that, that's how I look at it. You know, like if I didn't have instructors that were as good as they were and share that knowledge with me, um, you know, we would have failed. Uh, and the British army never lost one dog and one handler. So the whole time we were doing it. So it was a hugely successful program. Um, and I bought those same, that those principles, you know, when I came over to the U S training, the U S military, um, you know, trust your training. I think that's the most important thing you can, you can, you know, get complacent pretty easily, but if you your attention to detail is really important, but, uh, and that's, you know, to going back to the tracking, the reason I love the tracking so much is because, yeah, there's, there's a huge amount of trust that goes into that animal. Um, so if you don't do your training properly, you're not going to get to the end of the track, regardless of what happens at the end of the track and whatever flicks your switch. Um, you know, whether you're going after blood spore or going after a poacher or going after a bad guy, you know, depending on what type of alpha male you are. Um, it's, uh, yeah, if you don't do your training properly, your dog won't be successful. And, I, you know, I see a lot of, uh, you know, great dogs like they've got great patrol work they've got great detection they've got great synergy with their handler uh and then but it comes to the tracking and you can just see it's uh, all of a sudden everything changes and it's like well what's going on here and it, it comes down to graft but you you got to train you know tracking requires effort a lot of effort and a lot of time um which which cops don't have a lot of time you know i mean that's what it comes down to they're so busy at the at the best of times you know doing everything that they're supposed to do you know, plus with the current situation, everyone's like, you know, got to be really careful what, how, how they do their job. Um, you know, so the, the trackings, you know, not, you know, enough time is spent on it. Um, and that's, I think, probably why Jeff and I get on so well, because we're both big, you know, tracking guys and, and we put a lot of time and effort into the tracking. And for the dog to be good, uh, whatever the good is for that, you know, kind of department or organization, um, you know, everyone has different standards, then the, the work needs to come into it. So yeah, tracking for me, I think if you, if you do a tough, a tough track and you get to the end of it, like there's nothing more rewarding. I, I, I hunt men for a living and I enjoy it, you know? So, uh, that's what it comes down to, I guess, for me, that's what flicks my switch. The dog's a tool dog gets me to the end of it. Um, you know, so yeah, it's a challenge and I rise to it. That's how I look at it. Yeah, it's really interesting uh, that you mentioned the the passion you have for tracking because that's uh, we're kindred spirits that way. And to find the right marijuana enforcement team dogs <clears throat> that connect with our handlers so well, and and you know, Jay, some of these man tracks we've had from you know clandestine grow site, and we've got bad guys that have bugged out, and they're they're booking terrain, you know, no trail, steep canyons, brushy country, you you know the scenario. Yeah, and they've got escape trails pre-planned. They've got pickup spots, and they're quick. They're agile. They're in good shape. And we've had to do some tracks that literally went miles, you know, away from a grow site. And I mean, kind of a needle in a haystack type thing, you know. But mm. to your point, when you're really passionate about it, and you're that type of dedicated handler, and, and we we had two of the best handlers I've ever worked with, and they're still working operationally, you know. Um, they don't want to give up. And they, they motivate that dog not to give up. And, you know, me as a team leader at a certain point, got to say, hey, man, we're four or five, six hours into this track. We've got a whole gross site to process. We've got evidence, man. Yeah. I need you guys back here. You're getting out on the wire and I can't get you any support. And they're just fearless, you know, and the, and the dog yeah. gets off that. And so, um, but that is the ultimate reward. When you're hunting bad men, there's nothing better because you know you're making that dent. You know, you're taking somebody out of circulation that's going to do harm on some level. Um, for, for you, you know, in, in the big theater of terrorism, bombs, mines, et cetera, you know, or fugitive recovery or, you know, just on the run, 
Um, but talk a little bit about what makes a good handler, because you can have a great dog. You guys can have trained a ton, but I've noticed if you don't have that symbiotic relationship, you know, not all handler and canine connections are cut from the same cloth. And it's not a dig on either side of it, but there is a big, big uh, advantage if, you know, kind of the stars align. And, and we saw that and we have that with, with some of our handlers that, that I don't see in a lot of teams just because of time limitations or training restrictions or budget. And uh, talk a little bit about that and how critical that is. Yeah, no. Um, so obviously the pairing of the dog and hand is going to be critical. Uh, the, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm, I'm procuring four to six dogs at a time. So I get the best of the kennel where I get them from. Nice. You know, so that to me, to me, that's the easy part. The, the dog side is is not complex. Um, you know, I've obviously done it for a while, so I know what I'm looking for and I know what I'm comfortable with uh, to make my program successful. But the handler side, that's that's you know the challenge for me. Um, and I'm just going to back up a little bit and just you know put a shout out to the CCOA because I I've done a lot of tracking in the states and I've worked with a, a lot of uh, different departments and agencies and. I can honestly say, like, the, you know, the, the wildlife wardens, the conservation officers, you know, whatever their title is, they, they are by far the best tracking teams. Um, their dogs are, like, they, they're good tracker dogs. Um, you know, but, but all law enforcement tracks, you know, um, it's, you know, it's not to say because they do it all the time. You know, I think everybody tracks. But their dogs are really good, really committed. Um, you know, so there, there's something going right there. And I've, I've, I enjoy working with them. Uh, that's kind of how I got on that seminar. But, um, yeah, I spend a week doing handler selection. And I've got a different situation where, you know, I, dic I dictate the terms of the program. Um, the people I work with have no clue about dogs. Uh, you know, there's, there's obviously law enforcement kind of like mindsets, but it's, it is Africa. It's not, it's not like over here. So it's a little bit more Wild West. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I won't do the program if I can't select the handlers. So, and I've had that. People have asked me, you know, we've got these four guys who are going to be dogging. I'm like, yeah, look, I'm, I'm going to choose the handlers, <laughs> right. not you guys. Yeah. And because, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I'm a business at the same time. So I need to be successful. So I've got to have good dogs and I've got to have good handlers. Otherwise, they're not going to catch poachers. And everybody hears about the bad stuff. Um, so I do my week and I, I basically, I test a variety of different things. Um, I don't. You know, you can't test for empathy. Um, I think you can create empathy. I think it's something that comes uh, if you think of the type of handler. And I would do the same selection if I was in the U.S. or in Africa. Uh, but I'll talk a bit about what I do in Africa, you know, just to kind of like paint the picture a bit and, you know, uh, make it a bit uh, – hopefully it'll make sense. But right. the, the handlers I get, they, they, they're coming from communities where very poor, no electricity, no running water. The, the one um, community in Zambia, there's like – you know, two and a half thousand people that share one well. Um, so all the wives go down with their kids and they're all carrying buckets of water on their head. And, you know, it's, it's, it's desperate areas. Um, so a dog is not seen as a pet. It's not seen as, you know, something that you cuddle or watch, you know, sit by the fire, watch TV with that thing's going to be chained to a tree by the chicken coop, because if a predator comes at nighttime, it's going to bark. They don't care if the dog gets killed by the predator uh, they're going to get another dog the next day because they're all over the place. There's no animal control or anything like that. So there's dogs all over the, I, I, I trained a puppy up um, like a local breed and I, I, I tested 55 puppies in a one kilometer kind of like diameter. And I mean, she was the only one that survived out of the 55. And uh, just because we took her in and dewormed her and fed her. So, you know, all the other puppies just get, they're everywhere you know uh, but they don't have a long shelf life so 
and this is, there's no, like I said, no electricity. So there's no refrigeration. There's no deep freezes, nothing like that. So a goat or, you know, a cow, cow's a bit big actually, but a goat, you know, that, that thing is going to be kept as long as it possibly can. And it's going to be harvested before it's needed. You know, they're not going to chop something up and put it, you know, like in the fridge type thing. Um, so yeah, animals are, are necessary and, but, but they're not seen and they're tools, you know, so it's a, it's a way to you keep the animal alive as long as possible. And you'll see them on the back of motorbikes tied up and they sque- pigs are squealing and it's awful, you know, like animal rights would go crazy if they saw it, but uh, they can't slaughter the pig and then drive 200 kilometers on the back of a motorbike with the meat. Cause it'll go off. And then, right. you know, they're just, it's too expensive. There's too much value in it. Um, yeah. So that kind of like paints a picture of where the guys are coming from. And that's not every guy I've trained, obviously, but the majority are coming from backgrounds like sure. that. Um, you know, possibly illiterate uh they probably have done some kind of criminal activity you know like poaching and i'm talking light poaching bushmeat that kind of thing uh just to survive um sure. and you know huge families but uh so i get i try and do five handlers for every position i need uh like participants to select so you know 20 guys for four positions i put them through I do this three-way tug of war and it sounds silly, but it's like literally three ropes connected in the middle and they, they just keep pulling. Nobody can win because as soon as one team wins, the other two pull that team back in. And right. it's just a, it's an endurance exercise and I can do it in a very contained small area. And I see how they do that. Hmm. And I'm looking for the guys that quit. So the guy who's like, Oh, I can't do it anymore. You know, okay. Boom. Bend. Yeah. He's out of there. You know, I'm not going to keep him. But uh, you know, the guys that like persevere and they keep trying, they want to win. They want to be successful. Right. They, they want to be in the team. Yeah. Okay. Look, that's, so he gets a check in the box. Then we do a series of different things. Uh, but there's two, well, I would say three, three exercises I do. And if I just did those three, I think I'd be able to identify good handlers. Number one is a multitasking. So it's uh, egg and spoon and it's a hundred, you know, yard kind of course. And I put like hurdles and, you know, tires I got to crawl through. The one thing is to walk over a wheelbarrow. It's pretty tough walking over a wheelbarrow with an egg and spoon. Um, it's a timed event. If they drop the egg, it's a 30 second time penalty. Uh, but if you think of an, uh, a handler anywhere in the world operationally, um, you know, he's a tracker handler. So he's got his dog, he's right. got the leash, he's feeling the leash, he's paying attention to the dog. He's got to look at his fives and 25s and the surroundings. He's got to look out for buffalo, lion, elephant, and some guy with a weapon. Uh, maybe there's a snake on the path, whatever. So he's got to have really good awareness. Right. Uh, yeah. Then at the same time, he's got a rifle. So he may need to engage if necessary. Um, and he's got a radio. So he's got to talk to his team. He's got to keep his team close to him. He's got to communicate with a helicopter or a fixed wing or, you know, some sort of, you know, aircraft. Uh, and then obviously relay information back to the option. So there, there's a whole ton of things that are going on in that situation there. And I remember like sitting around a fire with my buddy, Mikey, and we were like, man, how do we, how do we test for that? And yeah. the whole reason we came up to it was we had this guy helping us out on the first program. And uh, he, he had a hard work, a good guy, but definitely not a dog handler. And he was walking the dog down the airstrip and I'd call him on the radio because he was like a kilometer away. And he, he would literally stop, turn around, look at me and talk to me on the radio instead of just walk the dog and talk on the radio. <laughs> and we joked that he, that he couldn't do two things at once. Um, so this, this whole thing that I just told you about, came about around a fire, drinking a beer, uh, multitasking. Um, so yeah, egg and spoon carries the, the, the spoon is the dog, you know, they've got to pay attention to that, but 
subconsciously almost um it's it's on a it's on a teaspoon so it's a smaller spoon you know so it's easy to fall off and then they've got to stay inside this track that we've cut into the ground so they they've got to pay attention to ground spore along the path uh, we put these markers out so I could put like a flashlight, a watch, a pen, you know, everyday items. So then they got to recall how many of those things they see along the, the path at the end of the the, the spoon race. Um, and then also I take these like placards and I put them out and they have a number on it, you know, from 10 to 20. Um, so while they're going along the path, I call them on the radio and I'm like, Hey, what is five times three? All right. It's 15. Okay. Carry on. So they, they do that. The very end of it, I, I sit them down. The clock stopped. I'm like, relax, you know, put the spoon down. Because that spoon's like five tons by the time they get to the end of right, the trip. Right. <laughs> and uh, so just relax. I'll take a deep breath, you know. And um, I say, okay, what was the question I asked you? Uh, what was five times three? Okay, what's the answer? 15. Okay, along your track, did you see number 15 anyway? Yes, I did. Every single number is a different color. So what color was it? So then I'm looking at their, their attention to detail and their recallability. Uh, because if you do a 25-kilometer track in the bush, you know, and you, I don't know, there's a cross track or some, there's a situation or evidence or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, it, that could be 10 kilometers away from a road, you know, and we don't have helicopters and we don't have luxuries like that. So we've got to be able to get back there. Um, and they've got to be able to recall it and obviously give evidence at the end of it and write statements. And I just, you know, I'm not saying that that egg and spoon race is what makes a good handler, but it 100% tells me who I don't want. So right. I've been the guys that fail that, uh, and then I do um, a clicker exercise. So you're seeing like, you know, SeaWorld, whatever, clicker training, um, you know, and it's a, a verbal and nonverbal communication uh, task. And it's just, they're marking correct behavior. One guy pretends to be a dog. One guy pretends to be the, well, is the handler. And they, he's just marking behavior. So I'm watching the handler and his ability to read behavior on a guy who doesn't know what the task is. But right. then I'm also watching the other guy and his interpretation of the reward being the marker Okay. And how he processes that information. So, but there's no communication verbally. Um, so, it's it's actually amazing with that. When you, you know, like I can tell pretty quick. And then the last thing I do is I take the guys for a, uh, you know, it's like a, a three station walk. And the first station, they stand and they talk to the dog. So they grab the dog and they just walk. The dog has no clue where they are. Uh, and then the second one is uh, they actually sit down on a chair. And they physically praise, sorry, they they uh, they physically praise the dog. And the third one, they sit down on the chair, physically praise and verbally praise the dog at the same time. And I look at what the dog does, um, you know, and I want to see how the dog reacts to that person and, and what they do. And I've got a guy in Namibia, uh, and I adore him. He's, he's, I mean, he's a superhero in my book, and he's just such a good dog, man. Um, but he, I remember, like, when I did the selection with him, this dog, Benno, loves me, absolutely loves me. And... I mean, it doesn't matter who's around. That dog is going to be with me. Uh, like off leash, he just is totally focused. And old, uh, this handler had the, had Benno and he was walking him along. And uh, Benno like jumps up onto his chest with his big pads here. And uh, he's just, you know, and the handler's like stroking his ears. And this is a completely alien type response to this dog. And no fear, no nothing, talking to the dog. And the dog's like loving him. And I was like, okay, you're selected. You know, it doesn't matter what happened before now, but you're coming yeah. with me. Um, and those guys have smashed boats left, right, and center. So, um, yeah, I think with those three things, I can I can tell a lot about a person. Um, and not one will select a guy, uh, but like I said, we'll get rid of the guys I don't want. You know. Yeah, so those, that, are, that's those are all. Part. Those are some really really unique, uh, you know, handler testing drills. Uh, some I haven't heard of. I like it. I mean, we, we might have to implement some of those over on this side. <laughs> yeah. Did you run? Yeah, the- I, hey. Yeah. Let- 
Did you run I'll the game wardens through then. that uh, egg thing? Because that would have been uh, epic <laughs> at that conference if you set up a course. And uh, yeah. we did, we you did, did. A, we did a um, yeah. I got a buddy Royce. He's a warden down in Texas. Okay, and he was at the conference, and uh, so he came up. We did some clicker training and stuff <laughs> with him, um, just as a demonstration to the audience, you know. But uh, honestly, I, I would do it for anybody. Like if I got a new, um, you know, we get these. Um, like guys who go up with the chopper and their entire job is just to be eyes up in the air. So someone flies and they're just looking for whatever wounded animal or carcass or people. And uh, I do the same thing. Those guys have got a, a, a pretty decent job that requires multitasking. So I would do that. I mean, it's not just for dog hammers. It's that would apply to anybody. Um, and I think any kind of law enforcement role, you have to multitask. Yeah. And uh, if you can't multitask, you're getting into trouble pretty quickly. So um yeah, it's, I think it just it, it demonstrates an awareness of, of that individual and, you know, what their surroundings like. I mean, if they get the color of the number wrong, it doesn't mean they can't be a dog handler. But right. the guy, if it comes down to two guys and one of them remembered the color, okay, he's my guy. Uh, you know, he's got a better, like, attention to detail. He can recall information better. Um, I would probably get the color wrong every time I did it. Um, you know, so <laughs> yeah, a that's bit of great a being the teacher. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I, I'd add something into that, Jay. Though I'd take a sharpie and make them, you know, draw a little dog on the egg. So put ears and eyes and nose. And <laughs> just just I, add I, I to actually, it a little. Uh, <laughs> I do that, mate. Day one, I send them out to go find a rock. So if they come back with a rock this big, I'm like, okay, you're lucky. If they come back with a rock like this, and where well, you guys are carrying that around all week. I want you to groom it tonight. I want you to name it. So they, they do that. And I see who comes back and is like washed their dog and cleaned it up. Some guys paint it up and everything. And then on the Friday, I make them do a, uh, like a public speaking event. So they stand up in front of everybody and tell us about their dog and why they gave it a name and what it does. And, and I just want to see what they're like in front of a crowd, you know? So yeah. it's just, it's silly. And by Friday, everybody's a lot more relaxed and, you know, they're more comfortable with some of the stupid things I do. Um, but, but your training uh, has evolved. That's, that's what I'm seeing from the time you started to the time you're teaching. You have taken and you have evolved the dog training and you've taken the best aspects that you've been trained and then you've added stuff to it, haven't you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, I would say 10% of what I do, I kind of like self-discovered. The rest of it I've learned from really good dog guys. Um, yeah. You know, so like it would it'd be wrong for me to stand, uh, you know, like some of these guys write books and pretend they know everything about dogs. Um, the credit goes to good instructors, good friends, good peers, and like some really amazing dog people I've met along the way. And, uh, you know, I've totally plagiarized their techniques uh, and then, you know, come up with a hybrid of my own version of what I think is right um, for what I, for the operational environment that I'm in. Um, so I wouldn't go and do urban tracking the way I do, you know, tracking in Africa, you know, um, I would approach it differently, but, uh, for the stuff I'm doing in Africa, hundred percent, uh, you know, the, it's all come together for me. It's like every, everything I've ever done is like put me in place for this, this, uh, work in Africa. So I'm, I'm very fortunate. Great. Well, let's get into that work in Africa and you know, what you're doing there, how you're doing it and the impact you're having. I mean, that's just the, the whole story, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I, I was born and raised in Zimbabwe, um, you know, educated until I dropped out of school, basically. But uh, yeah, I um, my grandfather was a provisional warden for uh, Matabililand South in Zimbabwe, which is you know, one nice. of the bigger provinces. Um, so I grew up around national parks. I grew up in national parks, you know, uh, 
my my mother did. So it's part, you know, it's part of my uh, kind of upbringing. And I loved it. I love going for walks in the bush with him. I, uh, you know, he teach me about the trees. And he was, I mean, uh, like a true conservationist to the point where he knew every bird, lizard, insect, tree, plant, you know, animal in like the local language, Latin, English, you name it. I mean, he was very, very competent um, bushman. And uh, yeah, so and the same for my uncle. Um, my uncle, you know, ex-military, but then went into national parks. And uh, he was actually on the elephant culling team. So back in the 80s, you know, they used to go and wipe out a whole herd, uh, which, I mean, you imagine if that happened now, it'd be terrible. But, um, oh, yeah, you know, that. so, you know, like I grew up with these photos on his wall, of, you know, and it's just big, big hunting. And uh, he did game hunting for a while after he left national parks. And, you know, so it's like that, that, that side of my life, you know, was definitely, um, you know, lit the fire, I, sp- I suppose. Um, and then on my, my father's side of the family, um, my dad was a cop. Um, so he, you know, I grew up around cops, uh, you know, so basically, I guess during school time, I was around cops. And then during school holidays, I was around, you know, wardens out in the bush and uh, doing the national park stuff. So, yeah, it's kind of weird that I'm back into it now. Obviously, I told you I joined the British Army and everything. And, you know, that was totally like not planned or anything like that. It just ended up happening. But it's like cycled back into to what I'm doing over there. So my first program was in a national park called Gonorijor, which is in Zimbabwe and the uh, southeastern side in the low felt. And it's a very hostile environment. Um, I had no plans to get over there to do conservation work at all. I was focusing on uh, law enforcement, you know, DOD contracts, trying to do what everybody else is doing over here. And I got asked to go and basically be an independent you know, guy for some elephant training that was going on and elephants were being trained to detect TNT because they're migrating through um, minefields in Angola through Namibia into Botswana, but other animals are stepping on these landmines. So there was this hypothesis that these, you know, elephants can smell the landmines and are avoiding them or are they transferring it over, you know, through these routes that they use all the time. Um, Regardless, they were doing this training and sure enough, the elephants could uh, detect TNT uh, and indicate and it was really cool you know it's all clicker training and yeah. so i i got to go and observe that and babysit a bunch of nc state kids who you know they were like doing their whatever phd um so i thought free trip home went back to zimbabwe uh go see you know mum and hang out with some mates and whatever and while i was there somebody asked me if i would uh, review a um a proposal for a dog program that was being set up in kenya uh, that they were funding there was a donor I was like, yeah, absolutely. It was like friend of the family type thing. So went in, read the re- proposal, told them what I thought was good, bad, you know, indifferent, you know, not that, but, you know, never assume that I know everything, but, uh, you know, certainly know what a good kennel would look like. Um, so yeah, shared my information back and we just got chatting, had my laptop. And I, I just before I set up Invictus Canine, I was working on the US Army's combat tracker dog program. So we were taking dogs out into, um, into Arizona and tracking, you know, hot conditions, all that kind of stuff. And we had all these researchers that were like getting paid to, you know, make sure they knew why the dogs were doing what they were doing and all this stuff. So, you know, I devalue that. That's not that's not fair. I learned so much from those researchers on what a dog can do. You know, it's like stuff that back in the day you had a hunch about, but now there was science that would back yeah. it up. So they, that was reassuring for me that, you know, what we were doing was right. And, and also like how the dog was doing it, you know, from a, factory point of view and you know what was working um 
and those dogs were deploying overseas to Afghan, Iraq, Syria, you name it. So, um, yeah, learned a lot about like working in those like like extreme conditions. So I showed him some of those videos, and I was like, "Yeah, check these out." Like, because there's this at the time, people thought dogs can't work in Africa, like tracking. There were some that were successful, but like you couldn't like produce it like you know multiple times. It was like a special dog or whatever. And I said, look, I can I 100% can train a dog to track in Africa. No problem with that. Yeah, but they're scared of lion. They're scared of buffalo, elephant. Like it's just come down to desensitization. We've got dogs, you know, carrying on searching off like post IED. Um, you know, if the dog's never, you know, been exposed to an IED sound and uh, the feeling, you know, um, and I'm not saying right next to the dog, you know, obviously a vehicle, you know, kilometer away, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, but if you, if you, you know, ensure that the dog's exposed to that beforehand with simulators, you know, you know, whatever machines that make the sound for you, then yeah, they, they can deal with that. So then I was like, it's just a case of bringing these dogs in who know nothing about Africa and exposing them to it in a positive way. And uh, yeah, I'm hundred percent confident I can get them, you know, working in this environment. Um, and obviously we talked a bit more about some other things. I and mean, he said, look, if you find someone who wants dogs, I'll fund it for you. And I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. Again, no plan to do this whatsoever. We were having a beer, like just chilling out. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the next day, uh, another friend of mine, uh, his wife was working with um, a lady that uh, rescues pangolins. So basically, long story short, I got put in touch with someone from Gonorrhejour through this pangolin lady um, with a Tiki Highwood Trust. I'll just give them a shout out because they do amazing work. Um, and... Uh, did the same thing just told him about what i did and how i did it and where i'd worked and whatnot and and he said well if you find a donor then we'll get a program set up and i was like well i actually spoke to this dude yesterday and you know <laughs> here's his email you guys should talk and i was back three months later with my first two dogs um you know so i was like this conservation works easy you know everybody's throwing money at it and everybody wants the work and that was the only time that's ever happened every every other time it's been hard graft and you know, a lot of begging, borrowing, and stealing. But uh, it uh, honestly, the stars aligned for me at that moment, and we went in there, and the do- the dogs did so good. You know, they did a really good job, um, and obviously the proof was in the pudding. And then everybody heard about it, so I just got emails. People were like, "Hey, do you want to? You know, we're interested in a dog program. Send us a proposal." And obviously, they'd heard about the success, and it was a proven concept, and it just went on and on from there. And uh, yeah, I've got uh, forty-one dogs in Africa now. So across the continent. Um, So, yeah, and they're all doing good. Um, You know, obviously some do better than others, like anything, you know, they're not all perfect. Um, But yeah, very proud of, you know, the, you know, how it's happened and come about. But, but again, um, I'm I'm sitting here in North Carolina talking to you guys and the boys are out there doing the graft. They're the ones that are making it successful, not me. You know, I just, I give them the info and they apply it and they make it better. So credit goes to them. Um, But that's pretty much how I got into it. Yeah. It's a pretty weird story. Yeah, on one one point, you know, we talked about finding the handlers and all, and these these forty plus dogs over in Africa working. What are you looking for in a dog specifically? Um, breed, particular breeders, particular traits, certain levels of ball drive, for instance. I mean, there's so many things we look at. Yeah, price. We're, all, we're, we're kind of looking for the price. <laughs> Everybody so looks at price. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's that, yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> shortage on that. Well, you were testing every, yeah. you know, African dog within 50 kilometers, and I'm like, so he's uh, here. Come here, puppy. Give him a little snack, and then <laughs> then we test him, huh? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, That's economically no, sound. 
But I've only done that one time, though, man. The rest of my dogs are like, okay. you know, I will, I, I'm I, I glad will we're clarifying it then. Yeah. I'm a straight up military guy where, you know, the the budget was dictated by the threat. And obviously yes. with Afghan, you know, we mm-hmm. go buy dogs, you know, that's right. Um, and yeah, it was very, it was an eye opening experience when I got into law enforcement in the US. And, uh, you know, obviously you've got big departments, they're buying crazy number of dogs and, you know, big money and whatnot. And that's cool. And then smaller departments and especially yeah. conservation guys, man, they, I mean, that they do a great job with the dogs that they're getting and what it does, it tells me that it's not about, again, it comes back to trusting dogs. You know, I don't trust a dog. I can get a, a $40,000 dog from Europe and bring it over here and it's never going to catch anybody, you know, because the training's bad or the handler's weak, whatever. Uh, And then you got some of these guys that go and they literally, they get a lab from, you know, the farm down the road and they, you know, they've got passion and drive and desire to train that dog. They've probably had dogs their whole life shooting ducks or whatever. And uh, you know, they've, they've got some common sense and, they, they apply it to the dog and that dog's phenomenal, you know, and it's doing right. huge distances for, for us law enforcement standards. It's like they're doing big distance. And, you know, that's a, those like, you know, the wildlife police officers that I come across, that's what I see. And so, yeah, I think, um, you know, but I do, I do go, I, I like, I don't have a kennel in the States, but uh, I do go to Europe and buy my dogs um, right. to take to Africa. It's just, it's, you know, I guess one of my sales pitches is if you want a dog program, I'll set it up in three weeks for you because I can go to go to Holland, get my dogs, ship them over to Africa, and then we start. You know, and uh, you know, it is, it, it, look, it's it's a commercial option. Um, so, the, but the dogs I'm looking for are much smaller than your typical law enforcement dogs. Um, so, you know, I live in both worlds. So at the moment, I've just got back from Africa, so I'm in you know metrics, so kilograms, but. Uh, <laughs> It's a 25 kilo dog. So that's probably around 45 pounds yeah. to 55 pounds top end though. Like that's heavy. Um, so it needs to be light. And, and the way I explain it, cause obviously I work in conservation over there. So every single person I meet is, you know, fresh out of university. Um, very uh, woke. Uh, my daughters yeah. would love me saying that word right now. Um, and <laughs> Yeah, so they, they come over and uh, they see, a, you know, two ribs on a dog and they're like, oh my God, you're starving your dog. And it's like, okay, it's a working dog, you know. It's, yeah. it's not fluffy at home that's obese. But, uh, you know, the, the, the weight of the dog is important. Um, and if you think of like someone, you know, doing a 100-meter sprint versus like Hussein Bolt, I mean, that, that's a big dude. He's ripped. And uh, he's all about that short, sharp distance. And that's your typical law enforcement dog in the U.S. You know, it's a, it's a big dog going to go and hit someone hard quickly over you know worst case scenario two three hundred meters maybe do a room search clearance whatever um you know but they're certainly not going to be doing you know a 10 mile track you know your typical you know dog and uh, u.s law enforcement so um i need a marathon runner i need that skinny kenyan who's going to like you know Mm. beat the world record every single time he runs um so that's what i'm looking for it's a it's a lightweight animal um, pointers are very good, uh, but obviously they're very birdie. So I've got three pointers. One is birdie, but he's a straight up detection dog. And then the other two are tracker dogs, uh, but they couldn't care less about a feather. So pretty, pretty weird. Um, but they, I think they're, they're physiologically designed for the work that I'm doing. Cause they've got those long legs, deep chest and the performance just to keep going all day. Um, and it's like their whole brain is designed for that nose. So I, I do like pointers for it. Um, and then, uh, 
yeah, when I test, I'm not looking, I'm not breed specific. Uh, you know, there's a couple of programs that have patrol dogs and obviously then I'm going to look for your pointy type breeds, but I could look at 60 dogs and, you know, I mean, I, I could come back with Vizslers or pointers or Malinois or German shepherds. I will say the vast majority of my dogs are German shepherds and pointers, um, German shepherds and Malinois. Right. Um, but the, uh, I prefer German shepherds like, um, like out of the, you know, Czech Republic, Slovakia, um, good friend of mine once told me, you know, those Slovakian shepherds are all sale, no rudder. And, uh, it's just true. I mean, they just go, go, go. But I, uh, I enjoy working them. Once you get them kind of contained and focused on what they're supposed to do, they're brilliant, you know? And again, it's a lightweight dog. If it's fit, the guys spend a lot of time doing fitness with their dogs. We do long patrols. Obviously we're doing big tracks. So the dogs are naturally fit. The guys are super fit. Um, so, you know, and the, so the dogs are climatized to the environment, you know, whereas, you know, I've gone out to places here and the dog comes out, the, the new Ford Explorer Enforcer and yeah. it's come out of the air con and he comes, oh God, it's too hard to order work anymore. You know, five minutes <laughs> in and it's like, you, you, you check six paint cans, dude, you know, like yeah. back of the car, you know, um, <laughs> there's no air con where I am, you know, the dog's yeah. in the back of a bucky. So, um, yeah, you know, it's it's all about trainability. Confidence is a big part of it. Um, I like to see uh, confidence in the dog. I take them actually into the public. So I walk them around like the local town in, um, in Holland where I go to procure the dogs. And there's pigeons and fountains and kids on bikes. Everybody has a bike there. Um, there's a little small street that goes through this town. And I don't know why, but every single heavy goods vehicle in Europe just decides to go through it. So you've got the air brakes going off. And, you know, so there's so much going on. And if I see a drop of fear, I'll bend the dog there. I just don't want to see him again. Um, so that's that's a big part of it uh, because that dog will be coming across very new experiences and, yeah. you know, potentially hostile situations with wildlife. And I just need, I need, the, I need to see the recovery in that dog is strong, you know, so I don't mind if they get a fright, you know, or the air brake went off on the truck, but now does the dog shut down and want to go back to the car or, or does, he, does he like, oh my, that was weird. And then he carries on, you know, and then I'm good to go with him. But, um it's i just want to see like a boldness to the animal um yeah so that's a big part of it yeah it's interesting how you mentioned a lot of conventional thought when it comes to canines especially in american law enforcement is hey the the, the big land sharks right the big shepherds the big mouths that's going to get it done but working our team similar to what you guys are working in africa we learned that less is more you know and it's yeah primarily we're running belgian mouths just because they hold up in the heat so well yeah. Um, and, and 50 is, you know, 45, 50 pounds on the low end and 70 pounds on the, on the high end. Yeah. Um, have been our most effective dogs. And we've worked with, with larger shepherds in the early parts of our program, um, and, and bigger mouths, the bigger males, but our, our best now, and she was kind of one of those historical dogs was a 65 pound female, you know, yeah. you know, and Phoebe and, uh, you know, she just had all those right tendencies. She was totally social. She would never go blue on blue. She never, you know, came close to biting an officer. She was yeah. a love bug like our yellow labs off duty, but her, her call sign was fur missile on the team. And, and Jay, you'll relate to this, man. This dog, for a California law enforcement dog of chasing arm cartel guy, she had 116 bite apprehensions on bad oh, hands on us and 900 other arrests for almost a thousand, you know, basically in custodies over her. She lived to 13, but she was operational till about 11. Um, yeah and and it was just that you know kind of and a great handler i mean a magic handler combination with, with brian yeah yeah but uh that's when we realized hey man it doesn't we don't have to have these massive dogs we have yeah. to have the dog that's got the drive and, and she was just yeah. like you said she started off 
going into very weird terrain because we don't work in that type of uh, terrain and those type of criminals and how they live, you know, everything from their, their tendencies and the conditions uh, that they were operating these grows in. Um, and she would get a little standoffish if she was, uh, you know, failed on something or, or got a hard hit, but she eased back in. And I got to see that for the first time as I was learning about canines through my handlers. So, man, everything you say just reiterates that it, it really isn't the breed. You know, it's, it's everything. It's that combination, but man, yeah. smaller dogs for the hot weather and the long distance are definitely it. And yeah. um, we've seen some effective careers and she's just one good example. It's, it's cool to see. And, and you mentioned pointers and we don't use a lot of pointers per se on this side of what we're doing, but from a hunting standpoint, how good they are at that. And well, you know, most game wardens hunt and fish like diehards. Yeah, so yeah. We, that's our experience with dogs growing up, man. So just, just spot on stuff. And I'm glad to hear that come from someone of your expertise for guys listening that I, I don't need a giant dog. I really don't need yeah. a giant dog necessarily. It's good stuff. Uh, yeah. no, Jake, thanks, can, man. Can we yeah. hear some success stories of, of your teams apprehending people or fines or, I mean, that, that's uh, certainly uh, that's what they're designed to yeah. do. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, I just, do like, some bragging. I've got a couple that spring to mind. Yeah, <laughs> no, I just, I try to be humble, man, you know, but uh, the, uh, I mean, I got some, I'll tell you the first one I did was, uh, so this is, it's a silly story. Okay. It's not like a very cool war story, but I, like silly I uh, yeah, yeah. I was, uh, <laughs> I was in my, Already. in my little, little camp in a place called Chilelijo, which is uh, this like river. It's, you know, I got this like tent and I'd sleep outside of the tent cause it was so hot and elephants come past at nighttime. I mean, proper wild. Um, and so I wake up one morning, and there's this like kind of communal kitchen area and I walk down there and I'm, you know, rubbing sleep. It's still dark because we want to get some early training in before the, the heat gets in. And I get to the kitchen and I, I walk in and it's, it's like just bare. And I'm like, oh, wow. man, I, I, I cleaned up last night, you know, and, uh, but basically everything's been stolen. So I, um, you know, all the management were away for, you know, uh, in meetings and stuff in the, in the city. So I basically called the next senior guy who is the uh, workshop manager and he's a, he's a great guy. And I called Fumby. And coincidentally, there were some guys building a like a patio at this kitchen area, you know, to basically create more seating area. And uh, I said to him, "Hey, where are those builders? Because they've come back last night. Because they're from outside the camp. They're not they're not local guys. And uh, they've come back last night and they've hucked my stuff. Um, I want to talk to them." And he said, "Nah, it's not them." I was like, well, "Who else could it be? Nobody nobody else knows I'm here." Right. And he said, "Oh, it's he goes it's 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 Tondi," and I was like, "Tondi." Who's Tondi? Oh, Tondarai. He he comes in and he uh, he steals from everybody. He lives in the bush. We've never been able to catch him. Now, I I had a bottle of whiskey that he stole, and it was a major's reserve, and I wanted it back pretty bad. And uh, so I was like, so Tondi stole my whiskey, eh? All right. So I called Dyson, the handler, on the radio, and I said, hey, get down here now. He's a brilliant visual track. I said, find me a start point, get your dog, and we'll go. And we didn't have a, an anti-poaching unit with us. It was like a bunch of workshop guys and a couple of guns, you know. I had a radio. That was it. So we started going after this dude. And uh, it was like a, you know, one and a half, two kilometer track. And uh, we went to this, like, these ruins, basically. And he'd been camping there not too far from me. And uh, dog tracked through these ruins. So we knew he'd probably heard us and it took off. Uh, and then he hit the river. And this river's got some massive crocodiles and some big hippos in it and you know, I always say, like, if, if they swim through that, they can be free, you know, good for them, you know, because their balls are bigger than mine is what it comes down to. And uh, But anyway, the dog starts tracking downstream, 
And I wasn't sure if it was a scent going downstream, you know, if he had gone in the water or if the dog was actually on track. Uh, but it was very thick, thick environment. And I climbed up on uh, the high ground on the embankment and I was running along the top while the dog's at the bottom. And I couldn't see the team at all. I heard some scuffling and everything. Anyway, this dude starts backing out of the, the, like the bush line up towards me. And I'm on top and I can see him. He has no clue I'm up there. And he's ripped. And I thought, God, if I get into a scuffle with this guy, he's probably going to hurt me. Oh. Uh, he's tough. Yeah. And uh, he's barefoot, no shirt, shorts. You know, just he's like, a, he knows how to survive. And uh, I just screamed at the top of my voice to get on the ground. And um, he probably can't even speak English. Dude drop, spread eagled on the ground. I was like, oh, you know, thank you. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah, um, boys jumped out of the bushes. They arrested him. We took him off. But uh, up until that point, everyone was, wasn't sure about the dogs being able to track. And obviously, that was our very first operational track with the workshop. And, um, you know, but he'd taken my chicken and my whiskey and he'd boiled the chicken and the whiskey. So I, was, I didn't get my whiskey back. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that was, that was a pretty crazy story. But we took him off to the police station and they released him the next day, um, various different reasons. And he came back in. So for about six months, the guys would come across these bare footprints in the park in that area and they'd get the dogs out and do like a live track and start following Tondi up. And they got a lot of practicing with Tondi, kept arresting him, take him out, come back in, take him out. And in the end, they shipped him off to the other side of the country. And uh, so he's gone now. So no more real world practices. But uh, yeah, that was uh, the, the first, I would say, first operational track we did, uh, you know, you know, and it was an arrest. So that was good, you know, um, you know, proofs in the pudding. But uh, I mean, we've done some serious tracks like in Kenya this last trip. Um, so I got a request for detection dog to do bushmeat detection. They got some pretty serious bushmeat issues going on there. I'm talking tons of bushmeat, not like one animal. It's like commercially harvesting in the park. So they want to do a search of this, this uh, like four ton vehicle that was found in the park. So yep, deployed, there's nothing on it, you know, uh, but there were footprints going into the park. So, yeah, that same, all my dogs did dual, you know, so detection and tracking, you know, dual trained. And uh, so dogs started tracking and about 11 Ks into it, the dog um, came across a guy. He stepped down like a, like a ant bear hole type thing. And he actually broke his femur. So the other poachers just left him there. So he got arrested and flown out. He was probably happy about that. And then, uh, so carried on tracking. In the end, the dog did 19 kilometers and all three guys were arrested. Uh, But they were... So they were doing bushmeat harvesting, okay. but they, they, um, they'd come across uh, basically a, a gem area. So they had this illegal gem mine, which is pretty, uh, quite a discreet mine that nobody knew about. And they've been harvesting these like kind of rare gems to sell. But I'm talking tons of it, you know. And uh, yeah, so that was cool. Um, we've tracked through the night. You know, we, we don't have resources. So we don't have NVGs. Um, mm. I would say three of the parks I work in have helicopters. Um, and in one of those parks, you're not even allowed to fly at nighttime. Um, just it's a countrywide law. Um, so it's, you know, there's a lot of challenges when it comes to it. So again, it comes down to training and, and making sure if you train properly and you train, you know, train hard, fight easy, however you want to call it, um, then you can do your job. And even if you do it to 70%, that's still better than if, you know, if, if better than what the poacher can do. Um, but we had this, I did a training scenario through these gorges, um, and it's like, it's really hot, hostile ground. And uh, so we've basically broken through the fence line. Me and another guy deliberately dropped off outside the park, came in. We changed our footwear. We were wearing local footwear. So we looked like poachers visually um, and basically hugged 
this river until we got into the gorges where it's just it's just granite rock there's no visual sign um so we're forcing the dogs to get utilized and um we went into so it was a dusk when i came into the park so i wanted them to use the dog at nighttime because at that point they hadn't deployed the dogs in the dark yet and to me that's when they work best you know it's cooler they don't use their eyes they focus on their nose sound travels further they're paying more attention to what's ahead of them uh and it just comes down to a confidence in the handler so again let me show you what this dog can do in a controlled manner so you can have the confidence to do it later by yourself um so yeah they arrested me and um on that scenario we did and that was 14 kilometers and then a few days later these actual poachers came in the exact same area um they, they, they actually came into the park at the exact point where i came in it's just basically a gully and it was just coincidental that they well obviously tactically it made sense to use it but um there's other gullies but yeah coincidentally that they came at the same spot so we get a call we got to react to the same spot to do this and, and off we go and we, we start following them up that way um but yeah it's uh got the arrest at the end of it but actually funny story on that one so at the end of that track now we've done that one night training you know scenario um, so I, I'm not going to say the guys are totally prepared for night work, obviously. Um, so, they, but we go ahead and do it and they're tracking in the dark, uh, the, the same area. And, um, it's, it's one of those questions come out like, is this, is the dog doing this because this is where we were the other day? You know, are, are we actually on track? Can't see the dog. There's no white light because, you know, you're going to give ourselves away. No NVGs. Moon's about half full. And, uh, yeah, so we keep going. All right. So Mikey, my buddy, he, He's basically says, okay, guys, index is getting dangerous. Someone's going to roll an ankle or whatever, you know, you're going to run into an elephant. Mm. Um, so he grabs the dog. The guy's like, we just want to go up this hill and check at the, uh, um, for an OP to see if we can see any like small fires or anything nearby. Yeah. No worries. Go ahead. They go up and they actually arrest a poach on the top of this hill. You know, like for whatever reason he was up there and the second poach is like sneaking down. Now he's obviously heard the scuffle. Mikey's at the bottom. And he said, he's just sitting there. The dog's panting next to him. Obviously, he's been working hard. And uh, all of a sudden, the dog holds his breath, you know, like because he's focused on his ears. And and he's just like staring off into the dark. And Mike's got his back up against this like granite rock. He's sitting on another rock. You can't see him. And uh, he hears this movement. Mike's like, God, there's a bloody leopard coming down to the dog. And uh, oh. so he's like paying attention, you know, like what's about to happen here? Because um, the dog's going to get it if it is a leopard. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's the poacher. And then when the dog realizes it's human, he starts panting again. He's relaxed. Maybe it's one of the guys, whatever. And uh, so the poacher hears this panting. He thinks it's a leopard right in front of me. And so he pauses. And that's where Mike jumps him. And uh, the guy peed himself. He just he collapsed on the ground, <laughs> screamed blue murder, terrified, and just, yeah, wets himself. And, uh, you know, that was uh, a, a, pretty, a pretty cool situation. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, th these are like – fun stories i mean i would yeah. say you know we do stuff where we, we go out and we work hard for a long time um you know there's guys that are tracking big distances um they're doing follow-ups um and it's it's getting into like that middle management crime syndicate and you know it starts getting a lot more dangerous uh you know and we have lost guys you know to some in some of these situations so you know, reality kicks in when that happens. So again, comes down to trying to make sure we're prepared and, you know, trying to avoid these situations. Um, but uh, in Namibia, we've got this area where we work and it's called the Zambezi region and it's bordered by five countries. So everybody's coming through there to hunt elephant and uh, obviously legally hunt elephant. And 
those guys are just constantly, constantly out doing stuff and, and having arrests. Um, but no, it's insane. Um, but again, it comes down to the training. You know, I keep going on about the training, but to me, the training is the most important part of it. Um, if they don't train, they'll never be successful. Yeah. 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 No it's, it, it's incredible stories, brother. And I love the fact that, well, there's nothing more rewarding. You said it best, man. When you're, when you're hunting men, especially armed men at night during the day and you're using a dog to do it, that's, that's an e-ticket ride. That's a hair yeah, experience, yeah. no matter how you sum it up. It's some of the most dangerous work we've ever, you know, had the privilege of doing. And it's such a reward to catch that person, one for the accomplishment, right? The victory. But more importantly, you guys are stopping some hardcore poachers, you know, that are taking out large numbers of wildlife, either for consumption or commercial sales or whatever. And, and you know, that's such a problem worldwide. What you, you guys are dealing with it over there. We're dealing with it all over America. And, you know, and our other guests we've had overseas, it's just, I mean, it goes without saying how much wildlife is being depleted because it's getting hit from all angles now with massive numbers of, of targeted people that want it, whether it's commercial black market, subsistence, and, and you name it. And, uh, and, and the only effective way to get them is the way you guys are getting them over there because without dogs, usually a poacher that's skilled, as, as we know in our career history, Wayne and I, they can go on a career and never get caught. You know, and if an informant doesn't turn them in or you don't have a really tenacious game warden, to work so many informants and have so many community helpers, you're not going to catch that bad guy. And yeah. uh, man, you guys are with the help of these dogs and getting in these parks where it's most sensitive. It's a great story. And, you know, it's, it's stuff we need to see more of. And I always say, Hey, there's a lot of good canine teams coming on great trainers like yourself, developing some great dogs, but there is room for so many more dogs and so many more yeah. members on the worldwide, what we call a fingering line fight. So you're helping promote that man and, and kudos great work and no appreciate it stories man appreciate what you do yeah yeah no it's uh i mean and you know like just to tag on to that um obviously you know we've got really good intelligence networks and and you know we we support them they support us as you know it's a it's a, it's a cool relationship i, I i'm not going to name the place um but uh you know i went to this one park and uh a rhino had been shot and its oh. calf had been shot so and I mean, the, the calf had a nub. I mean, there was hardly any rhino horn and they, they harvested both of them. And it was brutal. You could see like mum had been shot and spined and she dragged herself trying to protect the, the calf. And then obviously they finished off and, you know, it was just like properly hacked out. And then, but right next to it was um, uh, all this fur from a lion carcass. Mm. So these guys had waited there for the carnivores to come in and they drilled the lion uh, they remove the paws, the teeth, uh, and the hide, and then they go and sell it all. And, um, you know, it's, and it's obviously all going, um, most of it's going over to Asia. And, uh, but that situation there, it was probably 500 meters away from the, the border, like where, where there's an actual road that's actively patrolled by teams. Yeah. And like, you know, that situation there, I don't have dogs in the area. I was doing an assessment and they were, they were asking for help basically. And they were trying to improve anti-poaching there. And to me, that situation, I was like, you know, you've got a, a camp that's 5Ks away, um, patrols coming up and down this road. They obviously came through the fence, you know, to get to this uh, rhino. Uh, this is an inside job. And that's, that's a huge part of the challenges is the corruption levels, um, you know, that we come across. Um, and again, it come, that's why I want to make sure I select my handlers because, you know, I can do these like small little integrity tests on them and make sure that, I can be confident in their honesty and, and I'm talking early on, I'm not talking, you know, 
the good guys. But um, yeah, it's it's huge, eh? Um, and those that's probably our biggest challenge when it comes to being successful is the inside information that's getting shared outside um, of where the teams are located or where they're going to deploy to um, or where the, where the animals are so they can go and hunt freely, you know? Um, yeah. But yeah, it's a, it definitely is a, a different aspect, which, you know, obviously you get corruption everywhere, but that, you know, when it's coming from senior figures and politicians, it's, yeah. it's definitely, it, it makes a game totally different when it comes to the arrest and the consequences for that handler and his family. Um, so yeah, we have to always keep that in mind. Yeah. Good point. That's a hard part of the fight, you know, yeah. internal stuff against us, but, um, yeah, great, great stuff. And how can our listeners and viewers find you for developing programs, teaching, speaking, doing any type of training and some of the good work you're doing? Yeah. So I've got a website. It's uh, invictuscanine.com. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a one man army. So, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I do, you know, I'm HR, I'm IT and I'm uh, training dogs at the same time. So it's, uh, it's a little antiquated. I will be honest. Um, email addresses on there, guys can reach out phone numbers on there. Um, but social media that's, I mean, I update that because, you know, it's a method to the madness, um, putting pictures and stuff on there. So it's invictusk9.com and, uh, yeah, they can check that out. Uh, <laughs> Dot com on Instagram and uh, Facebook. Um, they can see some of the work we're doing there. We've got some cool videos on there. Got a few little teaching videos if they're you know, curious about the type of training. Um, but yeah, no, happy to share. And, you know, I get guys asking me all the time for like a little bit of advice. You can only do so much over the phone, obviously. But yeah, I'm happy to, to help guys out and share some of the knowledge, you know, working on their dogs. Yeah. And on that note, um, for a new handler starting out, whether they be in a conservation agency with fish and wildlife, like where Wayne and I come from, or a law enforcement, you know, um, team, municipality, rural sheriff or whatever, any advice for a canine handler starting out and what they really need to have mindset wise to prepare themselves to be a good one. Cause a lot of people that want to be handlers, as you know, and we've had the same yeah. issue, but it's a very rare cut and a small percentage. It can be really effective. So what would you advise new, new folks starting out? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a 24 seven job. Um, so if you jumped in to get the take home vehicle, you should probably ha- hang your leash up. Um, but, uh, no, it's, uh, there you go. Um, but no attention to detail. That, that's what I look at. Um, you know, like the, the little things are what matters when it comes to the dogs. And I, I, I expect perfection. I don't get perfection. Um, you know, but, it's, it's honestly, it's the little things and it could be as basic as sit means sit. Um, you know, how many guys tell their dog sit five times before it sits. Um, so yeah, it's literally attention to detail and persevering with it. Um, a lot of guys will try something out, get frustrated and then try something different. The dog hasn't had time to learn what that first kind of process was. So yeah, just, just, you know, commit to it, commit to the thought. And if the training plan doesn't make sense, then don't do it. Dog to me, dog training is logical. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's just incremental steps of developing behavior. And uh, if, you, if you're if you going left field and it's crazy and it doesn't make sense in your mind, then, yeah, it probably doesn't make sense in the dog's mind. So don't try and do it. But those, those are probably what I would look at for a new guy. Yeah. But be passionate, man. If they're not passionate, hang your leash yeah. up. You're going to hate it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to hate it if you aren't passionate. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no doubt. Thank you very much, Jay. And uh, I'm going to attach, uh, I'm going to read Invictus, uh, the poem, out uh, as this podcast goes out. Um, I, I see Morgan Freeman actually wrote, read it as well. So if I can yeah. po- poach his 
his version and attach it without any issues. I'm going to use Morgan because he does such a great job. Uh, in- and he plays Nelson Mandela in that movie. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I'm going to try to do that. I'm going to run it by our producer to see if we can uh, – uh, poach that so to speak and uh if we can i'll just read it out at, at the end of this podcast because i it, it's very uh inspiring as you know like i said good. Na- names have power and like you yeah. said invictus plumbing invictus canine it didn't matter uh i i think uh that's part of you and being part of your program so i really appreciate your time on the thin green line i really appreciate what you're doing for that thin green line no, my pleasure, man. It's my privilege to do it. So thanks, guys, for having me. And, uh, yeah, genuinely appreciate it. Great to see you, brother. Stay safe and we'll stay in touch. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Invictus by William Ernest Henley. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgerings of chance. My head is bloody, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.